0: Well, good morning. Glad to see you all here. And as I do on many holiday weekends, want to just apologize and say I'm so sorry that you don't have a boat or know someone with a boat. Um, So too bad. But I'm glad you're here. Uh, We uh, are going to end in our study of the book of Ruth today. But before I jump into that, I want to let you know a couple of things that are coming up here Beginning October the 2nd—it says September 25th there, but it's really October the 2nd—we're going to start a survey through the Bible. We're going to start moving from Genesis to Revelation one week at a time with each book. And so just want you to know that's coming up. If you've got somebody who you think might be interested in something like that, just uh, let them know. We'll have a little brochure for you uh, next week and make that available. I want to also let you know that next week during the service, we're going to interview another one of our missionaries. We've spent this entire year uh, getting to know our partners in ministry around the world and this coming week. We're going to uh, interview Chris and Vera Lu, who have been serving in Ukraine, and they're going to give us some updates on their ministry and what's going on in Ukraine and uh, how we can pray for them as they move into their future. And so we're really excited about that. So just want to let you know those things. But today, we are going to move into the conclusion of the book of Ruth, and I have one last applicational Uh, resource for you out at the Connection Center, and uh, you can get that there. You can get it online. And then also have a chart, not my chart, which has been available as well, but a chart that's produced by The Bible Project. And usually I use these Bible Project videos uh, to introduce a book. It kind of gives us a good overview. But I thought with Ruth, after we have studied it in detail, just four chapters, we've gone through eight weeks of studying that, I felt like the Bible Project video would actually be something that would be an excellent review um, to help me move a little quicker through this last message. So this is about seven minutes long, but I'd love you to just see how what we have studied in detail comes together in the big picture. And so take a look at this.
1: The book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer, and their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled, and it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there, the father of the family dies. And the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpa. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi, and she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together, and the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, and she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is She says, Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow. And she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter four, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter one. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, the characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty, And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Ovid was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about.
0: It's great stuff, isn't it? Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things. the The book is about everyday people. There are no preachers, no pastors, no elders, no priests, um, no community gatherings, no church meetings. It's everyday life, and people are just making decisions. And some of them are making selfish decisions, or um, uh, decisions that that make a ton of sense. Um, Orpah and the kinsman redeemer who chooses not to redeem. Um, And some of them are making decisions based on just great loyalty to to their family and to the people that that they are committed to care for. Um, And in all of that, God is working out a particular purpose. And again, it is the interplay of God's immutable sovereign plan and our human choices And how God takes all of those things and weaves them together into this greater story that he is inviting us to be a part of. And when we make these choices to live in fidelity to him and in faithfulness to others around us, that incorporates us into this great grand story of redemption that God is telling um, and the story is, is such a remarkable expression of how they describe it in the video of loyalty. Um, the Hebrew word is chesed. It, it is um, generous acts of, of overwhelming kindness to help those who are in a desperate place of need and don't have the resources to help themselves. But the person who is offering hesed does have the resources. And not because they are bound to do so, but because of their generous heart, they reach out to others. That's what's going on in this great story. And, and, and it ends, as you saw in the video, it ends with a genealogy. And that's what I'm going to really land on today is this genealogy. Yes, I'm going to preach to a genealogy, but I need to review where we've gone so far in chapter four last week. Um, there's a situation where Um, this nearer kinsman redeemer whose name we don't know intentionally is trying to protect his reputation and his name is lost from the story. Um, Here's what we read. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to this town gate. Uh, We looked at some uh, archaeology. Uh, This was the typical place where business was done. He sat there just as this guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, Poloni Almoni, the intentional name given to this guy to make sure his name is not remembered. He's a so-and-so guy. Um, and sit down here. So he went over and he sat down. Just one other highlight in a similar way that um, we've seen God's providence show up and emphasized in the text, not even just behind the scenes, but sometimes the narrator going out of his way to so, say, it just so happened that Ruth just so happened to show up at the field of Boaz. You have a similar thing here. Um, He mentioned as he came along. uh, This this man that was just coming along. um, Lawson Younger says, The NIV translation of 4.1, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, completely obscured the impact of the Hebrew grammatical construction, which is better translated here as, and just then... Um, the, the idea of it is it's behold, here he came. <laughs> um, it is uh, meant to convey surprise. This is not simply coincidence, but the hidden hand of Yahweh at work. Um, he came up to the, uh, to, to the town gate, which is where people would have been doing business. It seems like he intentionally comes and just sits and waits. And it just so happens, behold, here he came, the guy he needed to be there. So Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and he said, sit here, and they did so because he wants them to hear the situation and the case that he's going to bring. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Poloni Almoni, a guy whose name we don't know, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people." If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me, I for so I will know. For no one has the right to do, ex, do so except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, the nearer kinsman redeemer says. Um, it seems like that Elimelech perhaps has sold the piece of land when he left to go to Moab, and now they're trying to get it back into the family possession. And so they need a near relative who has the resources to bail out Naomi, who doesn't have the resources, to get her land back so that she can have now something that will allow her to make money so she can live and so she and Ruth aren't going to be forced to glean for the rest of their lives. The nearer kinsman, redeemer initially says, hey, if this is just the land's transaction, then I'm in. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Um, Not only do you get the property, but you get the family rights, because as a kinsman redeemer, it's not just a financial deal. It's a family integrity deal. The kinsman redeemer would have been responsible to preserve the integrity of the family in every way possible, including if someone murdered someone in your family. A kinsman redeemer was the one who could take revenge. They are protecting the family name. And so he's saying, you have a greater responsibility than just acquiring this land. You also have a responsibility to raise up someone in the line of a so that their family heritage continues. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I'm not willing to risk it because what I might end up doing is having this land, sure, but the inheritance of that land is going to go to the child of Ruth. So i don't want to do that you redeem it yourself i can't do it now in earlier times in israel this is a historical um, thing that wasn't happening whenever the narrator is writing this in earlier times in israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other this was the method of legalizing transactions in israel it's like where i used to walk now you can walk Um, and so you give him the sandal so the guardian redeemer said to boaz buy it yourself and he removed his sandal now what's going to happen next is we're going to see God's blessing. These selfless acts of kindness, which throughout the whole book have been called um, worthy and noble, and they have been um, described as hesed on God's part, on Ruth's part, on Boaz's part, selfless acts of generous kindness. These Hessid living people are going to be recognized by others and blessed by God. Again, God's orchestrating all this. It just so happened she showed up at the field. It just so happened the nearer kinsman redeemer came along at just the right time. God's orchestrating all of these events. And yet their faithfulness is going to be, first of all, recognized eventually by others. Not always, because at the beginning of the story, I don't know if you remember in chapter 2, when Ruth shows up in the field, um, Boaz, um, his head of the crew, is not too keen on Ruth being there. He says some negative things about her. He calls her, yeah, Ruth the Moabitess. <laughs> she is uh, one who is, who, who is looked down upon. And in fact, um, Boaz may be playing that up when he says to the kinsman redeemer, you're going to have to take on Ruth the Moabitess. Remember, she's from Moab, although he does know her character. But what is happening here in this story as we move on is that their acts of generosity are recognized Others are going to bless them, and God is going to bless them. Then Boaz announced to the elders of all the people, today you're witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also required Ruth the Moabite. Just so anybody wonders whether I'm getting into something, I don't know. I understand. I've acquired Ruth the Moabite Malon's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown today you are witnesses again he is working hard to maintain the name of somebody else and his name is remembered the guy who was trying to protect his own name his name is forgotten if you're trying to make a name for yourself in this world you'll ultimately be forgotten But if you're trying to exalt the name that's above all names, the name above every other name, if you're trying to make sure you're a part of that great grand story, um, then your name will be recognized and your name will be blessed by God. Then the elders and all the people of the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous. This is this, may you be haiel, recognized. May you be worthy. May you be noble in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, at this point, you're probably just going, oh, yeah, this is, must be some neat, fine little story in the Bible. <laughs> Not so much so. Genesis 38 is a crazy story but has some connections with Ruth. And everybody is recognizing this is a story like a story we have read before in Genesis chapter 38. In Genesis chapter 38, we have Judah, one of the sons of Israel, one of the fathers of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, the guy who's the main guy, Judah. Um, He has a number of sons, and one of them marries Tamar, and he dies. The other sons are supposed to um, raise up a child for the one who died. But they don't do it, and they die, leaving only Judah. Now, once Judah is um, a widow, Tamar says now... I'm not gonna mess up the family because as long as Judah is married to somebody else, maybe there's gonna be another son. Maybe there's still hope for someone to raise up one of the other boys to raise up a family for me. But there's no son, and Judah dies. So Tamar does something very risky. And in our day and age, we, we would look at this and just go, You've got to be kidding me. She dresses up like a harlot. And she seduces Judah, her father-in-law, and she becomes pregnant. Now, (laughs) there's a, a difference in the stories in this. Ruth is working with a man of integrity. Tamar is working with a man without integrity. When Judah finds out that she's pregnant, even though he's the father and he doesn't know it, when Judah finds out that she's pregnant, he says, let's burn her. And then she pulls out his credit card and says, hey, you're the guy. And that point, he says this statement, really, really important in Genesis 38. You are more righteous than I. You are playing by the rules. And I was not. It's a messy story. It's a crazy story. Everybody knows it. But Judah and Tamar... Give birth to Perez, and Perez has another interesting, unique parallel. Perez is one of the twins. Esau and Jacob are twins. Perez and his brother are twins, and Perez is um, the the one who is the one through whom the genealogy is to pass. It's a it's an interesting birth and and a parallel situation, and everybody recognizes, hey, this is like that, and God blessed them. God kept them in the line of the story. And what we're going to see here as we move towards this genealogy is that the faithful who love God and live with chesed are abundantly blessed and become a part of God's redemptive story. The story is going to go beyond just their day-to-day provisions of, here's some barley, take it home to Naomi. Um, okay, we'll get married and we'll have a family. There's something bigger going on than that. God does bless you with daily provision. But the bigger thing that God gives you the opportunity to do is to be a part of a larger redemptive story. And you'll get to involve yourself in that redemptive story when you're faithfully involved in the lives of other people. Here's how it happened. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, interesting, the Lord here. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. This is the one spot where the narrator is very active in saying, the Lord is the one who does this. If you'll remember, when she got married, she was married 10 years. Chapter 1, she's married 10 years back in Moab with no children. She's gone with no children for 10 years. So this is an accurate statement. The Lord enabled her to conceive. The women said to Naomi, now interesting, it's Naomi because she's the one whose family is at risk here. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer may he become famous literally may his name be called out (laughs) may may he become famous throughout israel he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth it's the child who's going to redeem her it's the child obed yes um boaz is a huge part of the story he's faithful But it's actually the child who is the one they are looking at and saying, oh, now you have someone to take care of you in your old age. Because at this point, um, Naomi is probably significantly um, older. There's a huge age gap between Boaz and Ruth. Probably 15 years, maybe 20 years of an age gap between those two. And so even older is going to be Naomi in this story. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for her. Um, the, the picture here is, is a grandmother holding the grandchild. And they're just so proud and so delighted because there's, there's this sense of, oh, I have, a, I have an heir. This word son can mean son, grandson. It can mean, really means heir. Naomi has an heir. And they named him Obed, servant. They named him one who was going to serve. And he was the father of Jesse um, and the father of David. Now, at this point, you've, you've jumped to a, a part of the story that you go, oh, David, he's a big player in the Old Testament. Yes, he is a big player in the Old Testament. And in fact, they're going to highlight that, and they're going to make this something even bigger in the story. It's not just we need to make it from um, Boaz and Ruth to David. God's going to accomplish his redemptive plan, and that's going to happen regardless of what we do. I'm going to take you back to chapter 1. God's going to accomplish his redemptive plan even if you decide to move to Moab out of the land of promise. And I don't know whether that was a good decision or not, and at this point, it doesn't matter, does it? Because God's going to orchestrate all of those events. It's always the right time to align yourself with the purposes of God. Maybe they were out of alignment, but when they had the chance again, they aligned themselves. Maybe it wasn't the best thing to marry Moabite women. But like I highlighted last week, God wanted Ruth in the story. And so for some reason, he orchestrated for some circumstances that we're unaware of to get a family, Elimelech and Naomi, and their two sons, to move to Moab where most of them could die, but they could come back with Ruth. Ruth. And I don't know whether those were good decisions or bad decisions. All I know is God's hand was in the middle of it, providentially guiding, redeeming every single part of it. So I want you to think for a moment, back in your life, those decisions, sometimes you may know they were bad. You may look at them and just go, I don't know if they were bad or not. I have regrets. Should I have done this? Should I have done that? Look back on your life and those things and think about this story. And how God can redeem those choices that you made. Either bad choices or choices that you don't understand at all right now. God can still redeem them and turn them around. If, at the time that you are now, you begin to think, how can I live faithfully to the Lord? How can I uh, live in response to his gracious provision in my life? How can I be a part of his story and begin to live by not only his righteous rules, but going above and beyond so that you can bless others with the blessings that God has given you? God's going to accomplish his plan. Okay? I I want you... You've got to know that. God is going to accomplish his plan. You're not messing that up. But your participation in that plan may be complicated, or or it it may be... um, Eliminated based on decisions that you make. Um, Dan Block pulls this together so well. The birth of Obed signals the convergence of two themes, piety and providence. God's orchestrating every little bit of it. And the people who live with piety, righteousness, chesed, faithfulness, attentiveness to what God would have them do, the people that live in that way, are going to have a name. And they're going to participate in a story that gives them great joy. And there are some of these names, by the way, that are in genealogies. You don't know, you don't know them. I mean, you know Ruth and you know Naomi because we talk about these people. Um, but Azor, who knows Azor? Nobody knows Azor. Did you know Perez before today? If I was said ancestor of Jesus, is Perez one or not? Would you what would you have thought? Yes or no? You may not be some super famous person, but you get to be a part of the story along the way. This genealogy is fascinating. Bob Chisholm says the genealogy contributes to this message in a significant way, for it shows that God, God's rewards for those who sacrificially love others sometimes exceed their wildest imagination and transcend their lifetime. You'd be thinking about more than just yourself, okay? Because God's promises may not be exhausted in your lifetime. In fact, God's greatest promises, eternity with him, heaven, no struggle with flesh and sin and Satan, those are the greatest promises we have, folks. Not a boat that you don't have yet, obviously. God's greatest promises transcend this life, folks. You can be a part of God's story in a way that has ramifications far down the road. And the choices you make to be faithful at the hard times of life, when it would be easy to say, I don't see God's hand in this anymore, I give up. I've been there. Those hard choices you make to say, I'm still going to lean in to what God has for me in the future those have ramifications beyond our lives beyond our own individual lives and beyond the life that we live here and now Um, this then is the family of perez we go back to perez we go back to judah and tamar's crazy born child that came by playing by the rules when a woman had to take huge risks because all the men around her didn't have the character of Boaz. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. By the way, there's a bunch of you all out there that are Nashons and Rams and Hezrons. Nobody's going to really remember you, but you're a part of the story. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, number seven in the genealogy. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, number 10 in the genealogy. Keep that in mind. Genealogies, by the way, are are used to communicate things. They're not just, oh, here's here's their family line. I mean, you go to Wikipedia, I don't know if you do this, you go to Wikipedia and you kind of go to the the index and you go to personal life. Okay, who's this guy married to? Oh, Patrick McEnroe is John McEnroe's younger son, um, or younger brother. Okay, yeah, this is not just connecting family lines. These things have a purpose. In fact, the first line, this then is the family line of Perez. That's the whole structure of the book of Genesis. Show up October the 2nd, and I'll explain more. This then is the father family line of Perez. Notice Boaz is number seven, David is number ten. A couple of other famous genealogies have ten in them. Um, The ten names in the genealogy contrast the ten infertile years in Moab. There were ten infertile years in Moab, where there was nothing going on back in Bethlehem, a famine, and there were no children being born, 10 years of it. Now we get to a genealogy at the end, and there just happens to be 10. By the way, there's probably more generations than 10. They're arranging this very creatively, like all the other genealogies in scripture, to kind of get something going here. In Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 and Ruth 4, there are 10 10 people in the genealogy. And we know for a fact that there were probably people in between here because the son of means the heir of. B'nai in Hebrew can mean heir, not just son. But they've selected it to get us to 10 because it's a nice number that we can work with. But if you'll notice in Genesis 5 and in Ruth 4, number 7 are two prominent guys, Enoch, who walked with God, and Boaz, who walks with God. And the result is the birth of Noah who brings comfort, and David, who brings rule. This genealogy of ten people is is not just tacked on at the end. It's trying to communicate something significant. George Schwab, Generations continue on after David until Jesus, whose pedigree is listed in Matthew 1. He also is a king who deserves all Israel's allegiance as the son of David, God's anointed. He is the hesed, and he is the haiel. He's the worthy one. He's the hesed person. He is the Redeemer blessed by the Father. Why follow another since Jesus is all that one could desire in a king? This genealogy that ends with David gets picked up by Matthew. And here it is. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here it is. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of um, Abraham. Notice in there, in bold, there's Perez and Tamar and Boaz and Rahab and Obed and Ruth and Obed and Jesse and Jesse and Uriah's wife, Um, women, women who have questionable events in their lives. You get to Joseph and Mary at the end. And then listen to what it says. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. They take these these genealogies and they arrange them to get some symmetry to show here's the completeness of of God is up up to something in these passages. God continues to care for his people and society, functions best when those people take responsibility for caring for and supporting one another. That's true in the church, folks. The importance of taking responsibility for those who are weak and lacking support is particularly stressed in this book. In other words, the hesed shown by Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz has repercussions not just for themselves in their lifetime, but for the nation of Israel and for many generations to come. The long-term impacts of their personal piety has ramifications far beyond their lifetimes. Your decisions will have ramifications far beyond your lifetime. Because God's promises are not exhausted in this life. God's blessings are often realized by faithful actions and prayers of God's people. Just the faithful little things you do during the day. It's not surrendering to the call. It's blessing somebody near you. The theological message of the book of Ruth may be summarized as follows. Here it is. The whole book took me eight weeks to do this. (laughs) He does it in one sentence. God cares for needy people like Naomi and Ruth. He is their ally in this chaotic world. He richly rewards people like Ruth and Boaz who demonstrate sacrificial love and is so doing, become his instruments in helping the needy. God pulls all this together. (laughs) As God sovereignly orchestrates his redemptive plan, he blesses us so we can bless others to be a part of that plan. God's sovereign. He's going to accomplish his plan. And he blesses us Not so we can have possessions in this life and be easy, but so we can bless others as a part of his great story of redemption. So a couple of questions before we move into communion. Are you you placing your confidence in God's good and sovereign plan? Is that where you're living? Or are you resting on your own efforts? Are you freaking out because you don't know he's sovereign and he's in control? Everything's going to work out for his glory and your good. So relax and be faithful. And determine and look at how has God blessed you so you can take definitive steps to bless others. And and all of this, folks, ends not with just the blessing of children and someone to take care of them, but they're a part of God's bigger story that results in the birth of Jesus Christ. who provides the greatest blessing that we could ever experience, and that is um, a payment for our sins, eternity without any struggle with our sins, no payment for that sin, no, no conflict with Satan or our flesh. And that's what we're going to remember today. We're going to remember that the culmination of this story is not just the birth of little Obed. Obed. The culmination of this story is their little participation in this grand story of redemption. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and ask you to come forward and take these elements. There are some elements in the back if you're close back there. Father, we ask that you would make clear to us the wonderful, gracious opportunities that we have to bless others around us. But Father, as we take a moment this morning to remember how you have been faithful and loyal and gracious in your provision to us. The center of that provision is what we remember today, the sacrifice of your son. His body given for us, his blood shed for us. That's the real point. Get us refocused on what matters. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.